You're listening to the Upswell Podcast. This podcast was recorded on ancient country of the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, who remain the spiritual and cultural custodians of this land. I'd like to acknowledge their continuing connection to country and express gratitude to elders past and present for their strength and creativity. Hello, Hayley Singer here. Before the podcast starts, I wanted to jump in because when I spoke to Misha about my book, I was really nervous and I forgot to say the most important thing that I can say, which is to acknowledge that I live and I'm speaking from the beautiful, ancient, unceded lands of the Bunurong people. I'm grateful to live here. And I know that living here as an uninvited white settler puts a responsibility on me, on all white settlers, to listen and learn and then live and work in solidarity with First Nations people. I want to pay my respects to Bunurong people, the elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Upswell podcast. My name is Misha Williams and today I'll be talking to Hayley Singer. Hayley writes essays about literature and ecologies, queer embodiment and activism, multi-species in slash justices and on reading and writing as worlds end and begin again. Her writing has been published in Sydney Review of Books, The Lifted Brow, The Monthly, Cordite Poetry Review, and Writing from Below. They teach creative writing at the University of Melbourne. Abandon Every Hope, Essays for the Dead, is her first book. Welcome, Hayley. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit about you, um, how how life was up until the point of writing this book of essays. Yeah, gosh, that is such a big question. So I'll keep it to my writing life. Um, yeah, I, I've always wanted to to write and tell stories and I've also, I, th- I think I've realised recently that I'm, I've always been obsessed with na- narrative and um playing with language and and taking language apart and putting it back together again I think that there are those people who like will do that with remote controls and (laughs) I'm not that person um but I'm really interested in how you know words can be assembled in ways that open up meaning in different ways and and ways that sort of make sense to me but it's like in a conversation you can't just press pause and think about the etymology of a word or maybe you could and I just don't so maybe I need to step my conversational game up um but you know this is work that I have to do really slowly and I have to think about it for a long time and I'm not a fast worker at all I'm a very slow worker a very intuitive worker and um that's really frustrating because there's no straight line from an idea to a completed completed in massive inverted commas completed piece of work or final draft of a work um yeah, I really do see this book as a, f- a final draft. Like this is the furthest I could take this set of ideas for now. And I, I knew I had many conversations with um, mentors and, and teachers about the fact that, you know, you sort of have to let a piece of writing go beyond your body and your computer at a certain point in time. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that idea of, sort of being obsessive, pulling language apart and 
thinking about narrative and narrative structures and representations. Like I was so not thinking about it in those terms, obviously, when I was young, but, you know, I've, I've always been a really, you know, I've been writing, you know, books since I could draw and telling my mum, you know, stories that would go for hours, you know. So it's been something that I've been really obsessed with since I can remember being, you know, cognizant of the fact that I could communicate with people. I mean, that that breaking down of words and finding out their meaning and maybe putting different words beside each other to open them up or to look at them in a different way. It sounds very poetry, but then you've also been kind of writing these longer stories. Um, was there was there kind of a pull towards poetry um, before? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, you know, like starting as like a journaling practice, a very emo journaling. And and I think, you know, I, I really wanted to do poetry and I, I I um I was. I was writing poetry when I was sort of in my twenties and early twenties and mid twenties and then I, I made the mistake of signing up for a poetry class at uni and I did so badly. Um yeah, I did I did so badly and I was just like, Well, I can't I can't do this this form anymore. Like I really believed that, you know, the teacher had the final say and, you know, like I was really under the impression that this person was able to say, you know, this is good and that is not good. And, you know, it was a really different you know, it was a different classroom to the one that I hold and, and the the teachers that I am really fortunate to teach around, we hold sort of really different spaces now, I think. Um, but, you know, at that time I, I really thought that there was this power that this person had to know what was quote-unquote good and bad and what worked and didn't work as opposed to thinking about, you know, what is a person trying to do and what sort of skills and strategies might they need in order to take that further and who might they need to read, like who do they need to surround themselves by in order to be able to figure out this thing that that person, that teacher might have had no idea, you know, that I was thinking, you know, or feeling my way into a very queer cosmology of poetry where it's like now I surround myself with queer poets and I'm like, yeah, like I feel like I belong with these people. Um, but back then I had no idea and, and I wasn't sort of being pointed in that direction. So I sort of walked I felt like I was walking away from poetry massively and I went and did um, my, my honours degree and I wrote a thesis thinking about pain and artwork um, and I was looking at some of the, the paintings, uh, portraits of Frida Kahlo and I wrote what I thought was like a speculative biography of Frida Kahlo. That's what I, I still think of it as, drawing on uh, her diaries and, and just thinking about, theorising about pain and art. And I got marked down because it was bad poetry. I was like, I'm not even trying to write poetry at this point in time. Like, this is a complete misread. But then, you know, you start to realise, like, how slippery these forms are or how slippery they are in the hands of a writer and then a reader and how they can really change or be read very differently or perceived very differently and I think that I'm I'm still reckoning with that in in this book the slipperiness or the way that I feel like I don't necessarily work in the essay form or the poetry form it's like I, I work across them and therefore I don't know really where I am except that I know when I try to write differently, the writing stops, you know, and, and it's really exciting. Like, why would you want to, you know, these 
these terms, like both poetry and essay, are robust enough of as forms, and they're mutable enough that you can do so many different things with them, and they're still poetry and still essay, and they still yeah. have that sort of deep interconnection with each other while also speaking to, to different sort of histories. Um, and I sort of, I sort of love that uh, about poetry and essay. It's, it's really interesting with, with something like this, when it's your creation, you can give it a bit of a subtitle, can't you? And you can say, I mean, this is essays for the dead. So, but then you've also got that discussion of it being a thanatography um, and there is, you know, there's, there's that, there's poetry throughout it. Um, but it's great having that freedom to, um, or maybe some sense of control over it. You can give it to readers and say, actually, this is, this is what it is, but it can also be all three or more than that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think ambiguity and indeterminacy are two words that feel really important to me in writing, um, because, you know, I see it all the time and I feel it like that there's so much pressure to be able to identify and like, you know, mm. squish something into a certain form. And um, I, I feel like I see all the time, like in my own work and in the work of students that I, work, uh, you know, get the opportunity, the great privilege to work with, it's like, you start to think, oh, I'm going to write this this thing in this way, and and um, sometimes when you're not open to all of the other forms that need to come in and be, you know, cohabiting that space of that essay, um, then you don't sort of give the topic or yourself the space and the tools that you need in order to articulate a certain idea or a certain feeling, and you know there is this you know essay, you know covers. Yeah, so many different ways of like the essay is capable of doing so many things. Total, total chameleon in in, in so many ways, and um, there's just no way that you would say that an essay can't also be poetry. But I, we hear it all the time, and you know, like you know, like well, what is this? And 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 it's a good question because as you see, like I still I'm unresolved. <laughs> Even though the word essay is on the front of this book, I'm still totally unresolved about what it is that is actually between the covers. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's, a, it's a good place to be, isn't it, that, that in-between space because of the doors that you're opening. Um, yeah, and, and I wanted to ask as well, so what, what was the thinking behind this, um, we'll call it a book of essays, in this question um but what was the thinking behind it did it start with a single essay was there an inciting incident um that got you writing on this topic um thanks for asking that question um so i was i had uh this came out of my my master's thesis which i did not finish i, I converted my master's thesis into a phd um but when i was you know really thinking about starting a, a master's and I knew I, I felt very strongly that I had to keep writing within the sort of framework of academia because that was the one way that I could see that I was going to have the space and the time to sit down with questions of narrative um, and the world and actually think very deeply for a sustained period of time. I couldn't see 
how I could do that work without that kind of structure. And, and not everybody's like that, but I'm absolutely like that. And that was really what I needed to do. So um, I applied to do a master's thesis and I knew coming into that that I really wanted to think about a topic that was going to shift and deepen a commitment that I had in my life. Um, so I wasn't sure which commitment that was going to be, um, you know, could have been queerness, veganism, what, you know, so many other things. Um, so the rain has just gotten really, really heavy here. I'm not sure if you can hear that, but it's 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 like quite atmospheric and amazing. Um, so I was thinking about how do I start my master's thesis and what do I do this on? And um, I'm a total library animist. Like I totally believe that a library would will withhold or offer up the books that you need to read at any given time. So mm. the animist that I am, I went to the library at uni and I was just walking through the shelves, you know, thinking like what is it, you know, that I, I really want to write about, you know, thinking about certain keywords or certain themes of certain ideas that felt very connected to my world and my life. And, yeah, I found um, Carol Adams' The Sexual Politics of Meat. Um, I, I, I'd never heard of Carol Adams before, but I hired it out and took it home and that really set my thinking for the Masters and then would go on to expand the scope into the PhD um, where my study was looking at um, contemporary novels that articulated um, the interconnected oppression between the bodies of uh, women and the bodies of animals. And at that point in time, you know, I was really thinking about, you know, whether it was queer women or cis women. I, I was thinking about the bodies of women. I now have, you know, questions about, why I would be exclusionary of gender queer and um, other sorts, uh, other genders, um, but that's what I was doing at that time. And um, yeah, there's this idea in academia where if you you know you write a PhD, you tweak it, you turn it into a monograph, you publish it, and you move on. And um, I was trying to turn this PhD into a monograph, and it was making me really unhappy. Um, and I spoke to a friend who sort of said, look, you can do the monograph thing. Like that's, that's, that's something that people do and you can do it or you can burn it to the ground and start again and write something that you can really stand beside and stand behind and that you feel really takes you to a place you've never been before in relation to your ethics and writing. And, yeah, I totally took the burn it to the ground route. I, I slashed the document. I tore the book in half um, and really started to build from the basis of I am not going to speak about this topic in terms of academic language. I'm going to walk away from the types of chapter structures that I, I was working with as a way of legitimising this topic for the academy. You know, I had to walk away from all of that and it was really when I started to do that that I found my language came into itself in terms of being able to be both factual at times and then really speculative at times, essayistic and poetic, and, and I was able to actually just speak on the page in the ways that felt really urgent to me and, and like, yeah, I can stand in public beside this book and say, yeah, um, th this has said something for now, you know. I think if I sat with it for another 10 years, it would be heaps better. <laughs> but you know this is it for now uh, 
yeah so it's it sort of it's it's come from many different places but um definitely from you know a desire to write in a way that would take take me deeper into an ethic that I'm working with in my life was there something about um academic language and maybe typical essay structures or plot structures or that felt like it was because your your topic is seems to be going against um a lot of these structures that have been in place that have controlled um and oppressed certain groups um yeah was that kind of part of it look i i think so um what was it about academic language? You know, there's there's a lot of incredible work and, you know, because I, during the PhD, you know, I sort of found myself in the community of critical animal studies scholars who are an amazing set of people whose ideas and their research is so founda- like foundational to the thinking in this book that I, I really do believe that, you know, these, this type of thinking produced through those academic structures, even when they are dismantling, intersecting and mutual oppressions, um, there's a lot of incredible work that's done through, you know, those academic channels, but it just couldn't be me. Like that's just, it's not how I could exist in the world, particularly in writing when, you know, I do write academic key essays, like, you know, I I will publish them. Um, uh, I, I sort of have have to in a way um but I do push against the structures at every moment that I can I think because yeah you know like as a creative writer I think it is on or it's part of our ability as creative writers to shift what can count as rigorous intellectual language I think that there are academic tropes and there are academic ways of speaking and when I read those you know, really traditional academic ways of speaking, there's something in me that dies quietly. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I really am very interested in thinking about how we can show that you can do intellectual and rigorous thinking and speak as a human being or an animal who lives on this planet with in a body, with and among other bodies, with life experience, um, and do that totally rigorously. And I think, you know, Sarah Ahmed, you know, talks about the fact that, you know, theory becomes its most relevant when it is emerging and being written at the level of the skin, like, you know, when we are writing theory with our bodies. And and Sarah Ahmed's not the, not the only person who has said that, but, you know, I've, I've been reading her lately, so <laughs> that's what comes into my head. But, you know, I think that this is where theory becomes extremely relevant is when it's written by bodies for bodies body minds um and we're really thinking about you know embodiment and the world and not somehow that ideas are disconnected from life yeah how how the processes of the meat industry are so hidden from view now um and those bodies are hidden as well um it makes sense that you'd want to ground this work um back in in a body yeah. um, I, I wonder if you could um read an excerpt from it now um now that we're talking about all that all that language For sure um so yeah i've already announced the fact that in this extract i'm going to be saying the word shit a lot but this is just a reminder 
uh, to people if anybody finds that word. Um, I don't know, depending on where you're listening to this, you might want to not listen to this section. But um, <laughs> look, it, it's not it's not copious. Um, so this um, extract comes from a chapter that's just titled August 2021, um, which was when, you know, all of this reading and this thinking was happening. So some parts of the book are actually written sort of like as a diary essay. Um, and this is, this is one of those sections. Okay. But I knew it. The slaughterhouse is cursed and quarantined like a plague-ridden ship. This thought is fixed in my head. Fixed is the idea that the world of the slaughterhouse produces and ignores slaughterhouse novels. Fixed, too, is Jean-Baptiste Delamo's novel, Animalia, just as the vision of knives sharpened on the barrel of a gun thrust into a nightmare called a piggery is floating in my mind. All leave bloody handprints on my eyes. It's not just that a hand must grip a knife, but that a knife becomes a hand, becomes a way to touch, which is to kill, which is the world of Delamo's novel, where the summer has come and an epidemic has broken out in the pig sheds. The pigs have been plunged into an even more putrid world than before. A man works alone, tossing stillborns and placentas into buckets for the incinerator. He's trying to save the family piggery. The smell of slurry is up his nose and burning. The shit is stupefying. The shit is killing him. It is the shit that advances, not the man. The shit that becomes more impenetrable as he progresses. It is the shit that senses his motion, not the other way around. It is the shit of his rummaging or in which he stands, now moving, now motionless. The shit says, you've got a tragedy on your hands. Shit records that the world is being unmade, that the ground of all being is being unmade. What can he do? Take things in hand, lose track of time. In its proliferation, this shit is paralyzing, and in it one finds what is just and what is unjust. The shit does not negotiate, it flows. He believes those who stand gut deep in it are bodies and no more than bodies, which is a thought that wrecks the life of the word life. In the shit he finds eternity, only not. Time is indistinguishable from shit in these sheds. In its magnitude, this shit has become a weapon. Thank you very much, Hayley. Um, yeah, I've really sensed that, what you were saying before about insistency and poetry having insistency, and that really came across when I heard you um, read. Um, I mean, when you started writing this book, was there already, um, you know, did, did you have kind of an alignment with um, animal activism um, b beforehand? Yeah, well, I, I had been vegetarian for a, a long time. I, I went vegetarian in high school. Um, and this was, you know, thinking about the lives of animals, you know, more than human animals was something that, was one of those commitments I was really thinking about when I was like, if I'm going to do a sustained study, it needs to take something, an ethical reality of my life deeper. And so, yeah, the, the lives of more than human others and their rights and uh, 
how the world represents more than human others was a really, it was really going around in my head. And, and it wasn't until, you know, when I found Carol Adams's book and then from Carol Adams, you know, was um, invited into the world of people like Laurie Gruen, um, Fiona Proben Rapsi, like incredible critical animal studies and feminist animal studies scholars um, that a lot of the feelings and suspicions uh, um, and frustrations that I had were um, getting language attached to them. A lot of the questions that I, I examine in this book but also that I looked at in my PhD were absolutely sort of starting to form in, in my head and in my life and I just didn't have language for them. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a huge uh, challenge to overcome when you, when you don't have the language for something and you feel like you need to think more about it, more deeply, more broadly, um, but you sort of don't have anything to grab onto. That brings to mind the, the way you use these two colours in a number of the essays, blue and red, um, and it feels really... It feels really transcendent to use these two words and to channel so much. Um, they feel very weighted and loaded by the end of it. Could you talk a bit about that, where where blue and red came from and what they came to represent in the book? Yeah. Look, I think the opposite. For me, it's like the opposite of transcendent. They're totally bodily and they're totally of the earth and they're totally of how our bodies sort of connect to the earth you know through blood and water I, I was thinking a lot about red because I I wanted to write uh, an essay I I really wanted to write a lecture on chickens but um, I couldn't find a way to do that within the sort of structure of creative writing um, I just couldn't find a way to do that and so I was, I was feeling really frustrated and end up ended up writing a lecture that was all about the color blue um, which felt like the opposite of red, but then you sort of realise that, you know, blue and red are actually deeply interconnected, like in our bodies, you know, sort of um, veins and, and blood. And um, in some ways it's really elemental like that um, and sort of uh, not, not something that I have critiqued really thoroughly beyond realising like this is actually an, yet another way for me to articulate a literature of the body. So throughout the book then these two colours start to accrete, you know, more multi-layered meanings. As I start to think with people like Anne Carson um, and as I start to think with people like Elliot Weinberger and their work on with on and with these colours, um, I start to realise actually these colours have really deep and, and like really vibrant lives within a body of literature that feels very important to me and also really strangely and directly helped me to think through you know, what is it? How are bodies and literature always being brought together? Um, and how how is writing and and blood or, you know, writing and, and water, um, you know, how are these things so deeply entangled that you actually cannot think water without language? And whatever that language is, or you can't think blood without language, whatever that language is. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, I guess I've, I've used these colours to start to generate meaning in a way that took me by surprise. Um, and when I realised what was happening, I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm actually just going to keep working with this because um, as uncritical 
and and what I mean by that is not that I wasn't bringing consciousness to it or wasn't asking questions of what I was doing when I was doing it, but I was just choosing not to tear it to shreds, even though I didn't have all the answers for why I was using these two colors. And in a way, you know, that was a way that I was also pushing against my academic uh, training a little bit was to say, I'm going to allow my intuition here to continue and I'm going to write my way through what I think is actually quite important, even though I don't quite know why it's important. Um, but the way that these two colors start to generate multiple and overlapping meanings, I think, is is what keeps them in the book for me, what, what makes them really sort of do work in the book. Yeah, and it starts to become apparent, doesn't it, how how interconnected we all are when you're saying your blood and water and even the, the journeys across bodies of water to yeah. death is a narrative that, you know, I didn't really think about until I was reading this and particularly that, that essay about um, – live exports um and then that you know the journey through hell um across bodies of water it's all it's all been there and it it makes me think as well about um what are the subconscious connections between all of these why have we subjugated animals to these journeys across water and i mean i guess this is also making me think about what i was saying to you earlier is i dreamt about this book I dreamt about being at a factory farm and there's something, I think there's something in this that's deeply subconscious, maybe repressed. Um, do you have any ideas about why that is or anything on, on that topic? Yeah, I have, I have so many thoughts about this. Um, it, we are like, um, generally I'm going to use like we, and I'm going to make generalizations. So I just want to, I want to flag that um, we are really living in a situation um, where everywhere around us there is a justification for industrial animal agriculture and its products. Um, so you've got, you know, like the the images of the chicken or the pigs who are basting themselves or the cows, the happy cows that hold out the wheel of cheese for you that's on the side of a truck or, you know, there's, I remember taking a photo of a pizzeria in Queensland when I was writing my PhD um, of a lamb that was sawing one of her own legs off and that was the logo of the pizzeria like and, and smiling, like maniacally happy to be offering up their body. So this is like a trope that is being thought about really seriously in critical animal studies, which is, you know, one of the extensions of the idea of the happy farm animals, right? Mm. So we've got these ideas, and you, you will hear this all the time in conversation. Like, um, I live next to a paddock, and um, you, you hear it often. You know, people are like, but they're happy. You know, like they're happy. Like this, this idea that animals, you know, farmed animals, industrially farmed animals, are somehow happy. Um, or obliging or, or are really, really willing for, you know, for them to soar off their own legs so that you can have your pizza. Um, so this is a discourse, this is a, rep, a, a, a representation that we are swimming in, like we're sat, like this is just, we're soaking in it. And I, I think that this is part of the erasure of all of the difficult politics of what it means to farm animals for their bodies and you know, their menstruation, their milk for their calves, um, that all of this is okay because they're happy. It means that there's this mass 
suppression of or erasure of the really difficult politics of what it means to consume the products of industrial animal agriculture. This is why being a vegan in space, like just like at a dinner table, not like in the cosmos, um, but like this is why like being a vegan at a table or just like in a room, um, you do, even if you are not talking about food, you know, if somehow it comes up, you immediately are the site of tension in a room because just through your, your embodiment, you are bringing a prohibition against talking about all of the difficulties, the horrors, um, the violences that are just part of industrial animal agriculture for it to function economically, uh, profitably. You know, I think about, um, you know, carnist culture, so like meat-eating culture as something of almost its own generic habitat. So there are all of these prohibitions around what can and cannot be said. Um, so there are these protests, right, where people will go into like um, meat aisles of supermarkets and put a sticker on, you know, like whatever, like ribs or whatever that just says, you know, this is where this has come from. And and it's so interesting to see the responses to this type of protest, which is just puncturing the genre of the meat aisle with a transgressive form of speech, Right. So this becomes really interesting. You start to see how actually bringing all of the bad feelings that are associated with the violence that we're saturated by to the surface, to cognition, to consciousness, um, it it shows just how like both fragile and defensive um, that carnist cultural habitat and generic habitat is. Um, so for me, all of that is connected to why a lot of this stuff feels like it's sort of coming from, you know, the subconscious or from a different part of your brain, because like, we're just messaged all the time. Don't think about that. That doesn't exist. Carol Adams takes this idea, I think from structuralist, uh, literary theory. I could be wrong. I might have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure that she's taking the idea of the absent referent from structuralist literary theory to say, look, when you have chicken on your plate and you refuse to recognise that that wing or that leg or that breast comes from a chicken's body, you are erasing um, the actual chicken from the meal and that is part of this process of creating the absent referent on the plate, right? So there are all of these ways that we are erasing, marginalising, refusing to acknowledge blinkering ourselves whatever um, as a way of maintaining the good feelings between uh, you know meat dairy eggs and and the people who who eat them um, it's a it's a really complicated space I'm not going to pretend like it's not like there are all kinds of dietary contexts right I want to acknowledge that um, but um, and with that acknowledgement I sort of also just have to to talk about the fact that there is this sort of normative um, carnist or meat-eating paradigm that says meeting, e- eating meat is good and if you don't do it, there's something wrong with you. Like, and you need eggs and, and that might be true for some people, right? Like I don't know what everybody's dietary context is, but it is spoken and it is sort of understood 
that that is a general condition of goodness. And the vegan body or the vegan uh, refusal to consume those foods um, is a, a protest against that or it, it does something, it brings something up to the surface that is lurking beneath that surface that would, you know, that surface that erases all of the practices and the politics and the questions that we should be asking and talking about all the time. Um, yeah, so that's why I think that this book feels like that because we're so used to just shoving this stuff to the side or pushing it down or, you know, tucking it away into little drawers so we don't have to feel, we don't have to have that discomfort or that unhappiness that comes when you start to realise that there is a lot of unhappiness a lot of discomfort, a lot of pain and a lot of horror associated with the products of industrial animal agriculture. To see someone that maybe represents everything that, you know, oh, you can refuse to, to eat, consume animal products. Um, yeah, it's maybe this abject kind of thing. It's like, no, we repress that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and there's um, a critical animal studies scholar called Richard Twine has done some work drawing on... Uh, Sarah Ahmed's figure of the feminist killjoy and, and he's sort of talking about the vegan killjoy and a lot of those practices and processes that Sarah Ahmed talks about in relation to the feminist killjoy absolutely exist in this space you know you are as a vegan disrupting that you know that direct line between a person and and the meat that they want to eat or the cheese that they want to eat and you will hear that a lot as a vegan it's like mm. I just couldn't give up cheese you know but it's like every time somebody says that to me I just have this image of what happens to get that to somebody's plate and it's just like no cow wants to lose her children you know Mm. no cow wants to be shoved into an auction ring alongside her child only to be taken away from it because the child will be sold like this is this is like horrific to my mind this is horrific and it's not unusual. Um, Ahmed would say, and I need to remind myself of this because I fall way too far into the context of not wanting to break somebody's happiness with their cheese, even though I find it to be really distressing and disturbing that somebody is so connected to this product of, of violence. Um, you know, I need to walk around, I think, with Ahmed in my head more to be reminded of, actually, who would I prefer to make uncomfortable in this world? A cow who is being kept continually pregnant, having her children taken away from her, like all of these things that happen to cows for the the production of dairy? Or would I like to make the person eating the cheese uncomfortable? And I think if you, you know, in this context, I want to make that person uncomfortable, sure, because if it it, uh, can mitigate or, like, lessen the other way more important dis like horror not even discomfort like horror that's the thing to do right but because i'm so terrible at that in conversation i had to write a book about it i have to channel all of that frustration i have to be able to say everything i've never been able to say in a conversation in a book because also in a book as a writer like you're not interrupted um and you also don't have to do that thing of sitting with somebody who is and not everybody does this, but this is definitely a very familiar experience that I've had. Someone whose naivety is an absolute strategy 
right? There's so much information out there and, you know, people can find out if they want to, you know, thanks to activists, right? Thanks to animal activists. We know so much of what goes on in industrial animal agriculture. Um, we have a huge debt. Uh, you know, I do. I, I feel that I have a huge debt um, to to pay there because uh, without them, what would we know, right? Um, so, um, you know, you don't have to, when you're writing, when I was writing this book, I was very, very aware and I was really thinking about the fact that I don't have to explain the the world <laughs> to somebody and all of the ways that, you know, we could get to a point in history where we are so deadly to so many animals on earth um, that it is now, it's totally unfathomable that we bring animals into the world and force them into an exile of their own lives. And that is happening every single day. Like that is unfathomable, mm. but it's impossible mm. in a conversation when somebody's like, how can we be doing that to animals while they're eating cheese off a cheese board, right? Like this is often how it happens in my experience. And you're just like, I can't have this conversation within this structure. Like there's there's this fundamental undermining of everything that I could say if I had if I had it in me or if if you could listen to what I'm actually saying. So this book was really for me, I had, you know, and I don't know if I've done it, but you know, I really had to do everything that I could to make up for the conversations I haven't had successfully. Um, and whatever success is, like I say successfully, like I'm not um, suggesting that conversations with vegans is about like, like some kind of conversion to veganism. Like that's not what it's about. Like and often people will, you know, I've had many people say that to me, like I'm not going to just convert to veganism because of this conversation. It's like I don't think that's why we're talking about it. Like, you know, we can talk about many political things, many ethical things, and it's not all about conversion, but that that is often, in my experience, something that people will sort of put onto those conversations. So when I say talking about it successfully, I mean in an articulate way. Exactly. And I think, you know, what you mentioned, that willful ignorance, and then in this book you've got just moments where you just say, look, listen and to me it seems like that's what it's about as well just to recognize what's going on you know that's the first step if it's being so repressed and people are rationalizing um this stuff as well yeah and they're supported at every turn this is why it's it's really tricky because they are supported at every turn and feeling good about it and i was at a, a pub the other night and um they were playing uh, greyhound racing on, on the big televisions and I was just, I live with two two greyhounds, so this was magnetic to me in, in, in all of its its horrors. Um, and it was really interesting that at the end of the race, the televised race, there's like CGI footage of the three hounds who have won standing on a podium, smiling and wagging their tails in this really sort of like, Oh, I've done a, I've, I've been a good boy type. You know, that was the, the vibe. Um, and I just, I was thinking about all of these ideas of, you know, like the happy farmed animal and thinking like that's it exactly, that somebody can watch something that's actually so horrifying, like the processes um, uh, through which, you know, any racing animal has come to be a racing animal, their lives as racing animals. And, you know, we often hear that discourse, like, oh, they might be raced, but they're treated really well. 
you're like this is another you know offshoot of the happy farmed animal discourse but then you've got that sort of visual representation of these greyhounds who are looking really happy like they've they've done good you know and um it's it's just that reinforcement one once again of you can feel good about betting on this race because these dogs are happy even though these are not the real dogs they're like a cgi computer representation and it's all you know geared up to make somebody get a hit of, of good feeling yeah but it's absolutely everywhere it's hard to break out of because it's it you know the world looks pretty shit when you start to step out of those structures that help you to feel good this book feels very of this moment i mean you talk about xenophobia um pandemics um particularly now i mean towards the end of it you're talking about coronavirus um did that, yeah, did that feel like, was there that urgency to this needs to be written now? This is a problem of the now. Absolutely. And um, there are a lot of incredible thinkers who have been doing work on the sort of interconnectedness between, you know, speciesism and sexism and racism and ableism. So I am I'm thinking with and, and building on those people uh, building on like as if I could but like you know definitely thinking with these people like Athens Silco you know Vandana Shiva um, Carol Adams people like Laurie Gruen you know they have all done incredible work and, and there are so many more like Dinesh Wadiwal who who you know I, I referenced early on in the book thinks about the war against animals it is sort of a sustained situation and the fact that the discourse of of war is very much you know a part of the discourse of industrial animal agriculture, and actually, when you when you look into the fact that a lot of um, the mechanics and a lot of um, the socio political reasons why we have industrial animal agriculture is linked to the fallout from um, World War Two. So you know the interconnections between war and industrial animal agriculture are absolutely there. So um, yeah, the. There are so many people who are thinking about all of these interconnections for so long. You know, Carol Adams, you know, wrote the essay, The Sexual Politics of Me, at the time when Peter Singer was publishing Animal Liberation, so 75, right? Um, so, you know, it's been talked about for a long time, decades. <laughs> um, and then, you know, to see what the pandemic was doing, particularly to the the inelastic systems of industrial animal agriculture in America in particular, it just felt like I couldn't look away from that. I mean, there, there's something you write in here about the, the dirt of facts being under your fingernails. I mean, writing this, did it feel cathartic at all? Did it feel like I just can't not write this? I mean, I also I also want to ask you about your use of the personal voice in here. Um, at times it does really feel like that's you speaking, having to confront this because you can't you you can't look away anymore. What was it was it kind of like that? Yeah, absolutely. And um yeah, two really good connected questions. And I'll sort of come through from the first question to the second. Yeah, I find writing to be really painful and not cathartic at all <laughs> and you know being immersed in this research was you know it it really wasn't pleasant um but I always have had in my head that this is not nearly 
as difficult as activists who will put themselves in the space of bearing witness within um, CAFOs and, you know, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations and slaughterhouses and Timothy Pacherat, who's a... Um, an academic whose work I sort of I reference in in the book went and worked in a slaughterhouse in Iowa, um, and then as part of that project drew these really intricate maps of how the line the line work system sort of occurs and all of the lines of sight and the way that um, the labour is broken up so nobody can take ownership over the death of an animal and nobody can see the whole process. So, you know, what I was doing working with representations of animal slaughter in literature is not nearly as hard as what Timothy Patcheret did and, and there are other scholars who have done similar work and I made a real decision. You know, a lot of people when I was starting out were like, oh, you should go and work in a slaughterhouse and I was like, no. <laughs> you know, like this is, this is a really uh, full-on thing to say to somebody. You know, there were, there was no good reason for me to enable those spaces, walk into those spaces when really, like those those are spaces um, where you know there are so many politics intersecting there of like um, just gender, class, um, you know, race. There's so much going on there that this idea of me as a white scholar just getting a job in one of these spaces just felt extremely wrong and and really questionable. Um, and, you know, I felt very solid in the fact that I was working with literary representations of these topics. So I did not need to move into those spaces to enable them or like, and this is a really difficult thing to say, take take work from somebody who needs work and, and gets that work, right? So, um there's a huge amount of there are a lot of problems with that suggestion that was leveled at me and Timothy Pacherat's work I think thinks a lot and very openly about all of those intersecting politics um so what I was doing was not nearly as hard as what Timothy Pacherat was doing which is not you know and then there are other activists who will go in and, and photograph these spaces video these spaces um, my work is not nearly as hard as theirs. And then, you know, what I was doing doesn't even pale into comparison with animals who survive the concentrated feeding operations in order to be slaughtered in an abattoir, right? So I was very aware of that, that even though this topic was haunting my dreams, even though I was walking around holding it in my body, um, it's just not as hard as what most people in these spaces are dealing with. Um and in no way did it feel cathartic <laughs> at any point in time. And actually, I think that um, part of, and I'm only realising this now, now that I actually have to like go in, well, you know, assuming I get invited to more conversations uh, beyond this one, but, you know, I, I actually have to talk about this book now. I really didn't think about the fact that I would be talking about this subject after the publication of this book, you know, in my head for a long time. I was like, oh, well, I'll write it and then that'll be it and then I'll move on. You know, I really didn't mm. think about the life of this book beyond me and the fact that I have to, you know, stand with it and answer for it uh, and speak to it. Um, so I think that I'm now moving into a, a difficult, a, another difficult stage with the book um, that's different to the, the, the difficulties of writing it to sort of maybe tie that into the idea of the, the I or the personal voice. Um, 
Yeah, that's absolutely that I is me. It's not a constructed sort of poetic persona. Um, for me, the the best or the most affecting poetry and personal essays, you know, exist at the level of the skin, and and it's really where writing emerges for me. And um, you know, it's you know, poetry happens when like bodies, you know, come into contact with another, or when your body comes into contact with a certain part of the world or a certain context. Um, and I think, you know, I'm really thinking about the fleshiness of literature and the fleshiness of poetry. So I really had to write that from this, my point of view, which is my embodiment and hope that if I got specific enough about that, I would be reaching other people. Um, even if we haven't had the same experience, if I was super specific about what I could see and what I was feeling that that would somehow resonate with others even if we're having different experiences. And um, I, I think that that's an important part of you know, connecting through writing is, is just being as specific as you can from your point of view of if, if, that's, if that's what you're writing. And that's really what I was trying to do here. Mm, mm. So important to, to ground it and have that. feels more like a conversation or like a relationship, doesn't it, when you can put it in a body yeah um, and I, yeah. I, I think also you know like before I was generalizing and I know that you know that that's really problematic in in many ways and and sometimes it, it's the only way that you can speak about a certain topic or a, a certain sort of general con- condition like you know the happy farmed animal but you know so often vegans are talked about as a homogenous mass uh, like as if we're this many-headed monster and I think it felt really important for me to to be in context and to, you know, really narrow the scope and just say I'm, I'm not speaking for anyone but me and I'm not speaking for what I can't what I can't see. And that that's also like, you know, a question of and approaching the idea of a politics of sight. What can we see and what can't we see in relation to industrial animal agriculture or the concentrated animal feeding operation or the abattoir? Like what can we see? What can't we see? What are we willing to go searching for? What am I willing to go searching for? What am I willing to look at, to read, to think about? And, yeah, the only way I could think to document that was absolutely from from my position. Yeah, yeah, and you're asking to be seen as a person, which makes total sense. Um, But I wanted to ask you, um, did you have a book that you feel everyone needs to read once? Yes, there are so many, so many incredible books. But when I was writing this book, I was thinking a lot about lament and the political work that lament does in the world. And we haven't talked about that at all, but it was really there in my head. And um, uh, when I read uh, Pretty Teneja's Aftermath, um, I just I, I couldn't believe what I was reading um, and it, it's it's such an incredible work of lament um, that I'm gonna say, um, Pretty Teenage's book Aftermath that was published by Transit in I think it was 2020. But yeah, it's it's um, an incredible an incredible book, and um, in it, uh, Teenage thinks a lot about sort of um, the abolition of of, of the prison system, all of the structures that um, intersect to bring 
you know, to make trauma, you know, a, a daily reality um, for many people. And there's this great interview between Pretty Teneja and uh, Lola Olafemi where um, ten, uh, Pretty says something like, lament has the capacity to hold on to a dream of a different set of conditions. And that's really what that book Aftermath does, is that it talks about the systems and the structures that we have. And at the same time, through this form of lament, it's also really openly dreaming of a different set of conditions. Um, and I, that feels so unbelievably allied to what I wanted to do, whether I have done it, I have mm. no idea. Um, but that makes me want to say, yeah, this, this book. Uh, I think that that's what this book is about as well. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll have to give that one a read as well. Um, but thank you so much, Hayley. This has been a fascinating conversation and it's given me so much to think about. Um, yeah, just wanted to thank you for, for coming in and talking to me, answering my questions. <laughs> for wanting to talk to me and ask me questions. And then, yeah, it's been really good, really good to talk about it. This is the first conversation I'm having about my books. So um, it's been really, really useful and, and, and lovely. Thank you. Abandon Every Hope is available for purchase from the Upswell website now. The music in this podcast was Mark Isaac's composition, Have One More, played by Simon Tedeschi for the ABC recording, Tender Earth. You can follow Upswell Publishing on Instagram at Upswell Publishing AU and on Twitter at Upswell P. Subscribe and listen to more episodes on Spotify and on Apple Music.